0: Henry Morrison, born in Tennessee, 1842, was a Baptist preacher and missionary. He spent over 40 years in Africa. After 40 years of service in the foreign mission field, Henry Morrison and his wife returned to the United States by ship. As they pulled into New York Harbor and approached the dock where they were to arrive, he noticed a crowd of people standing on the dock. He even pointed out to his wife, and it's like, you know, we haven't been forgotten. There's some people here to meet us. But as he drew closer, he realized they weren't there to meet him. Unknown to him, President Teddy Roosevelt was on that ship. He was returning from a hunting trip in Africa. The bands played. People cheered. Reporters gathered. All the attention was focused on Teddy Roosevelt. While Henry Morrison and his wife slipped quietly off the ship, obtained some transportation and made it to their room. Over the next few weeks, Henry was disappointed, discouraged. He felt like he'd spent his life serving the Lord and nobody cared. And yet the president comes home from a hunting trip and everybody cares. His wife cautioned him and said, honey, you shouldn't feel this way. And he said, I know, I, I, I know, I, I just can't help it. It's just not right. You know, so often in life, we know how we should act and how we should feel and what we should do, but it's still a struggle. Henry couldn't get it out of his mind and probably just a little let down and discouraged and somewhat depressed and bore out the, many years of service. Finally, after a few days passed, his wife said, Henry, you know God doesn't mind if you're honest with him. You need to tell him how you feel. Well, Henry, like all good men do, listened to his wife, went into the bedroom, got down on his knees. He told God just how he felt about the whole situation, what was troubling him. He wasn't there very long, he was very sincere, but it was a very short prayer. He came back in about 10 minutes. His wife looked at him and said, well, it's like, it looks like you've resolved the matter. What happened? He definitely had a different, a different attitude. His joy had returned. So he said, well, the Lord settled it for me. I told him how bitter that I was that the president received a tremendous homecoming, but... No one even met us as we'd returned home. And when I finished, it seemed as though the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and simply said, But Henry, you're not home yet. I suggest to you this morning that just like Henry and his wife, we are not home yet either. And yet we have a home. Philippians chapter three and verse twenty tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. For our citizenship is in heaven, wrote Paul, for which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we have our assurance of a heavenly home. And when we keep it in the forefront of our thoughts, then everything about our present state of mind changes. It makes a difference. It transforms us, it empowers us, it enables us. And most important to our topic today, we will be delivered from our anxieties. We've been talking about anxiety for the last three weeks, and this will be number four, and I promise this will be the last one. This is a very, very up-to-the-minute challenge for all of us in this world today, at this moment. And statistically, we find that, well, anxiety is a pandemic in and of itself. I found This breakdown, I don't know who came up with it, but I think it's very close to being right because I've seen similar ones from various sources. But I like the way he says this. He says, 40% of the things that we are focused on and that we are concerned about will never happen. 40% of what gives us anxiety will never happen. 30% in addition to that, 30% of the things that cause us to be anxious are in the past and we cannot change them. 12% are criticisms that are mostly untrue people make of us. 10% of what causes us anxiety, he says, is our health, which only gets worse when we worry about it, by the way. And 8%, yes, 8 percent of what gives us anxiety, what gives us pause, which brings us to real concern in our heart and mind, that eight percent, they're real, real problems that we have to face or we're already facing. The question is, what do we do about that eight percent? We know what Jesus said about the other things, Matthew 6. And we even talked about last week how when we are concerned, when we're worried, when we're anxious, we need to pray. And prayer is the antidote for anxiety. And that when we pray, the peace of God that passes understanding comes in and guards our hearts and souls. And that's a precious truth. We also addressed the question last week, well, how often do we need to pray? And my answer was simply this, well, as often as you have anxiety, how long do you need to pray? Well, until the anxiety comes back. Or you should pray when it comes back, put it that way. That's how long the peace lasts. Sometimes a few minutes, sometimes a few hours, maybe days. But When anxiety comes, pray. But how can we push that back? How can, we, how can we increase that time? We're all going to be afflicted from time to time in our hearts and minds. Anxieties are going to crop up. Now, it's out of control if that's often. But even if it's a few hours or a few days, we still need to address it. And we can pray about it, and we can get relief. But but what what will give us some peace for a longer stretch, if nothing else? Because we're all dealing with that 8% for sure. And the answer to that is in our text today, in John chapter 14, in verses 1 to 6. For Jesus is addressing his disciples here They are full of anxiety. And so in chapter 14 of John, at verse 1, the Lord says to them, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, the grammatical construction here is a little bit stronger than it is translated. It's almost translated like he's well giving them some, you know, some sage advice. Let not your heart be in no. He's literally saying, and the grammar is clear, he's saying to them, stop being anxious. This is a prohibition. This is a, at this moment, stopping kind of thing. Now, he had a reason to say that because you back up to chapter 13, verse 36, you'll note here, it says, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered and said, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. So he spent three years with them, day and night, week in, week out. But now he tells them, I'm, I'm going away. They were anxious about that. And that doesn't even begin to incorporate the anxiety they're going to feel in a few hours because this was spoken but a few hours before he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and ushered off to his trials and ultimately his, his uh, crucifixion the next morning. Their anxiety is about to increase exponentially. He wants to try to, as best he can, to tell them, look, stop now. Get a hold of yourselves now. And so he says, let not your heart be troubled. Now the word trouble here refers to acute mental and spiritual agitation, anxiety. It's one thing when we read in the scripture that we shouldn't do something. And we should have reason to want to obey. But we really need more information. We need to know how to do it. And the scripture always tells us how we need to do what we need to do when it tells us what we need to do. You say, well, is that really true? Well, if you look hard enough and you look deep enough and you meditate on it and you absorb what it says, you're going to find that the scripture gives us not only the what but the how. And that's exactly what Jesus gives to his disciples when he tells them, to let not their heart be troubled. Now, the answer to the how question had to do with what they were thinking about and what they were focused on. And the whole purpose and the whole point of what we're going to talk about this morning is about that. Maintaining our focus on the promises that God has made us. Maintaining our focus On our eternal destination. Understanding all that God has done for us, all that He's planned for us, and all that awaits us. And what we find by connecting verse one to what follows is simply this. If we focus on eternity, we can overcome our anxiety. Well, we're never going to overcome it completely. So the Lord comes back. But we can sure push out and stretch out that period of time between this point of anxiety and this one. We can overcome it, not just for the moment, but perhaps for even a spell. So what is it? What is it that this focus on eternity will do for us? What will it provide us with? And there's two benefits I want you to see with me this morning as we continue on from verse 1. The first one is this. If our focus is on eternity, rather than our present challenges and issues and problems, that anxiety will be replaced with a sense of anticipation anticipation of a future home. Notice he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Why? Well, he was God. They may have had some difficulty totally processing that idea. They should have had it by now. If they didn't, they should have. But whether they did or not, he emphasizes it. Look, you are standing here with a troubled heart, looking into the eyes of God. You have no need to be so overly anxious. For I am God in human flesh, God the second person, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he begins, after laying that foundation, to tell them, what it was that he, being God, he whose faith they had placed in him, he being the object of their faith, was going to do for them in the future. And so the next thing he says is this. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. So he says, look, you have something to anticipate. I am leaving. I'm going to leave you behind, but I will come back for you. Now, he hasn't come back yet. So what he said to them is applicable to us as well. We are as much as children and as much as disciples as they were in the sense that we are his purchased possession. We wait for his return. We should have a daily anticipation of our future home. Now our home is already in existence. Look at it again. In my father's house are... Many mansions. They already are. They were present when he spoke that two thousand plus years ago. God's house will be our house. In my father's house, he says, there are many mansions. It's already in existence. We just haven't taken up residence yet. Now, in this house of God, he says there are many mansions. Now, the word mansion here is a simple Greek word which means an abode, a dwelling place. Now, granted, it will be a mansion compared to anything we live in on this earth, but the emphasis is not that we will have our mansion. The emphasis is we will be in his glorious home. In fact, I think what he is saying here is this. There's one mansion. <laughs> That's the Father's house. which there's a lot of rooms. And we're all going to have our own room. Many rooms. My Father's house are many dwelling places. Now this implies our resurrection. You know, heaven is not about being disembodied spirits forever. There will be a resurrection. When we die, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8 says, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. At the moment we die, our immaterial Heart that God created goes to be with the Lord. Our bodies await until the day of the resurrection. There'll be a resurrection of our bodies and a reuniting of spirit and body, and we will live in a physical existence in a real place. In the Father's house that already is in existence. And this house will be prepared for us. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. The house is in existence. But Jesus said, I'm going to the house, and I'm getting your room ready. It's kind of like when you're having company. You're going to stay the night and you get their room ready. Now I was told I should make my bed when I was a kid, but I wasn't very obedient, and never really got in a habit. And I can't say that I would ever make my bed today, except on those occasions when my wife started doing it all by ourselves and says, why don't you make your bed? <laughs> or why don't you help me make the bed? It's important especially to the ladies have their home, their room prepared, decorated. If you've ever bought a, a house and if you walk in and there's no furniture and there's no curtains and it's just bare. What's the first thing that At least the wives want to do. Decorate it. Prepare it. Make it special. Put up curtains. Put up plantation shutters. Put new flooring down. Repaint the room. You know, I mean, the list never ends, right? (laughs) By the time the list ends, it needs to be redone again. Jesus said, I go to prepare your room. I go to prepare your place, your dwelling place. I go to prepare it. I can't wait to see what he prepared. Talking to Diane about this last night, she said, you suppose our place will be our favorite color? I said, well, certainly possible. He's preparing our unique place, our special place, I think. We can't even begin to imagine it. The physical description of this place is found in the Scripture, in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 10 and following. So you want to write that down. Revelation 21, verses 10 to 21. Revelation 21, verses 10 to 21. It's a description of what is called in the book of Revelation, the New Jerusalem, the city of the New Jerusalem. In chapter 21, verse 1, uh, we are told that this city, the new Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven, the new heavens, and it will come down upon and rest upon the new earth that God creates. Boy, you know, we always talk about going to heaven. And if uh, if we die before the Lord comes back, we, we will in spirit go to heaven. But physically, One day, heaven's coming down here. Not on this present earth, but on the replacement. The description there is magnificent. You've heard much about the gates of pearl, and the streets of gold, and all of that. I encourage you to read it and study it. The conditions also are indicated... more than in just chapter 21 of Revelation, verse 4, but that's my favorite one. Revelation 21 and verse 4 tells us that it's not only going to be a wonderful place to live, it's going to be a place of perfect existence. No more pain, no more crying, no more death, no more suffering. Now, when this all happens is very clear in Scripture, By the way, here's an artist's rendering of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. In that description in Revelation 21, we're told it'll be putting it in the English equivalents in the neighborhood of 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, and 1,500 miles high. Now, when I preach Revelation, I, I love to try to calculate the square acres of that. I guess you could just say acres, square foot, whatever. I, I, I've got a bunch of numbers I've calculated. And they're fantastic. I'm not going to take time to do that, but just the, just on the on the horizontal plane, it would be the size of about half of the United States of America. And that's just on the horizontal. You're talking about the same up, and I don't even know if. I don't think gravity is going to be a problem for us. I don't know how many stories it's going to be in it, but if you start calculating, uh, you know, the acreage in that place, if you allow, you know, X amount of stories, it just gets beyond imagination. The size and the magnificence is uh, astounding. Now, the point in time when this this will happen... uh, uh, I want to show to you on this chart. We've seen this a lot of times. I call it the prophetic timeline. It'll begin with the green, which is the Old Testament time period, and time progressing this way toward the era. And uh, the cross indicating the time of Christ's birth, life, and eventually his death and resurrection. That's followed by the age of the church, which we now are a part of. We don't know how long it's going to be. It's already been 2,000 plus. We don't know. The Lord could come back at any time, but we do know that he's promised to come back at an event we call the rapture, and it's described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. It tells us that those who have died in the Lord and and have been their bodies have been buried, but their spirits have went to be with the Lord. Because absent the body is present with the Lord, their spirits will come back with Him. He will. He, it, it doesn't say their spirits, but it says they will come. The saints will come back with Him. But then the bodies of, the, of those will be resurrected. Spirit and body will be reunited, and then those that are still alive at that point in time that know the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, they will be caught up together to be with them in the air. So we'll be snatched off of this earth and we will not die, but our physical bodies will be changed from mortal to immortal. And we will be spared the judgments that fall during the tribulation period, the time in the yellow. And, And then after those seven years, the Lord comes back to establish his literal kingdom upon this present earth, Beginning the millennium, or the millennial reign or the millennial kingdom. The word millennium means one thousand. It's a thousand years in length, and so God's going to reconstruct and reform and uh, <laughs> and uh, bring about a period of peace and prosperity and uh, paradise restored, probably as it was in Eden for a thousand years. And yet there'll be believers who were saved. I should be over here. Believers, that the people that have come to Christ after the rapture. And so they will just enter into the kingdom and they'll repopulate the world and their children, they won't all put faith in Christ. And there will be a final rebellion that Satan will instigate here. It should be over here. Final rebellion at the end of the millennium, over here. And that right after that, I put this red area in to indicate that's when, Revelation 21, 1, the old heavens and the old earth will be destroyed, and the new heavens and new earth will be created, and the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, will come down upon this earth and will begin eternity. So that's the timing, and this is what the Lord Jesus is talking about. You know, as a kid, lived in a small town, there wasn't a whole lot to do. We had three channels on the TV, and they didn't always work. Uh, I'm just trying to figure out why, but for some reason, every so often, my mother would say, let's go for a car ride. Now, that was just the worst thing a kid could hear. Spend the next hour or two riding around, looking at the countryside. To this day, I can show you, I can take you to every paved road and unpaved road in the county I grew up in, because I've been over them all. There's nothing worse as a kid to for me as a kid to hear, oh, let's go and go for a car ride. I want to stay home. I want to play ball. I want to get out in the yard. No, we've got to ride around and see. Same thing we saw last time we went. <laughs> I can understand now as an adult. I'm you know. kind of wanting to get out of the house. But it was just the worst thing for me because there was no purpose in it. We weren't going anywhere. Now, if Dad said, hey, we're going to go see a ball game, I don't, I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm good with the trip. I know where I'm going. But riding around just accomplishing nothing, it just was horrible. I mean, think about it. Would you like to just get on an airplane and just fly from one city to the next, and the next, and the next, and never, never leave the airport? Or get on a bus and go from town to town and never arrive anywhere? That would get old real, really quick. You see, that's what the world without Christ, that's what the unbelieving people of this world are doing. They're on a trip that never ends and they have no idea where they're going. And so they can have no peace and no relief from their anxiety. But you and I, we're on a trip through this world too, but we know exactly where we're going. We know exactly what it's like. We've got a description of the place. We've got the promises of the Lord Jesus. And that helps relieve our anxiety. There's just one thing we've got to remember. We're not home yet. So everything this side of eternity pales in comparison to it and lifts our spirits and takes away our anxiety when we keep it in mind. So all of this means we have something to anticipate. An anticipation that we can have in our hearts and souls that will push out and crowd out the anxieties and the things that are troublesome and worrisome to us. You know, we have 8%. Yeah, we have some real struggles, real problems. And God knows that's best for us because we won't grow and we won't be what He wants us to be until we face problems and learn to trust Him. He has a very positive purpose in it, though we look at all those things in a very negative light. So often, but when we think about where we're going, it changes everything the way we look at life. Sometimes I just like to think in terms of, well, Lord, maybe i got some struggles to deal with here. But look at what he did for us. We will never go anything even remotely close to what he suffered for us. And we have everything in the world to anticipate. And that will sure take our minds off of our troubles today. So, what does this focus on eternity provide for us? Well, first of all, an anticipation of a future home. And then secondly, it gives us an assurance of a grand reception. There's coming a day we're going to actually enter eternity. It's a special day. And we have every assurance... That it's going to come about. Verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. He has promised to come again. We're still waiting. He hasn't told us when. But we know we have that firm promise. And when he comes, he has promised to receive us to himself. There will be a reunion. With Jesus Christ. Now, for the disciples, it'll be a very real reunion, uh, uh in that, we, we, we haven't, we haven't seen Him. But yet, at the same time, the Holy Spirit indwells us if we put our faith in Him. So it'll be a, a fulfillment, a completion, a reunion in that regard. And it'll be a reunion primarily with the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondarily, it'll be a reunion with other believers and family members who went to be with the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter four and verse eighteen, after that whole description of the rapture that we've already talked about, verse eighteen gives us some very important information. Verse eighteen says, "Wherefore, comfort." One another with these words. It is His coming for us. It's that reception we're going to receive. It's that day we're looking for every day. We should be, as we get up in the morning, looking for, is the Lord coming back today? Oh, we should pray. The Lord said, when you pray, pray, thy kingdom come. That anticipation of that moment and that assurance of that reception into heaven and that reunion. Will change everything about how we look at life, and it'll be a reunion, friends, fellow believers, loved ones—a reunion in heaven. It's interesting. Genesis chapter twenty-five and verse eight. Way, way back in the book of Genesis, when Abraham died, it says this: Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. And and was gathered to his people. Gathered to his people. A reunion. It's always been there in Scripture. It's always been a promise. My wife was struck by this verse after her parents died. Her dad died in particular. Became the basis for the reunion heart necklace, which she designed and has been sold by Dixon's gift since way back in 2001 or so. so. People can wear it around their neck to be reminded of that reunion day. You mourn the loss of someone who's gone, we grieve their departure, but we do not sorrow as others who have no hope. We have that promise of reunion. Now, faith in Jesus Christ is the only thing that can bring us this anticipation and this assurance of where we're going that will allow us to alleviate our anxiety. Look at it again now. At verse 4 now, he says, And where I go you know, and you know the way. And the way you know well, they should have known. the case, they should have known. Of course, they weren't sure what they knew. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, "It's us like Jesus could have went into a long, long explanation. He just winds it all up in one verse. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth. And the life no one comes to the father except by me By the way the, the the articles there are important The way the truth and the life repeated 3 times all with the definite article means there is no other it is the way the only way and it is the only truth there is The truth And it's the only life that you can have, and it has to come through me. It is the life, the way, the truth, and the life. And then he he emphasizes further by saying, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now that's just not very inclusive, is it? You see, people say, well, you know, you're a Christian, and you think Jesus is the only way. Well, that's just, you know... You're you're not inclusive. You're not you. Uh, you're just not politically correct. You know. You're not fit to be on Facebook. <laughs> but you see, we didn't choose that. Gee, that's what God said. If you don't believe in God, then yeah, you can concoct anything you want to in your minds about where you're going and what might be in the hereafter. But if you believe in God, then the only thing that matters is what God says. So if you've got an issue, you're going to have to take it up with God. Now here's the thing. If we can imagine a a castle, go back to medieval times, Castle, high walls, the defensive placements, the guards on the walls high up, and and uh, and then they would they would dig a, a moat and put this this moat around the castle, which pre- prevented armies from basically getting across without coming under fire and being destroyed. They couldn't just walk up easily to the walls and try to breach it. And then there'd be a big drawbridge that could be. Let down whenever they wanted people to actually come in. This drawbridge we let down across the moat. People come in. It was a gate. Now, I've never seen a castle with more than one drawbridge, but I suppose they could put in as many as they want. But I've never seen a castle depicted anywhere that had more than one main gate and drawbridge. One way to get in. Now, who was it that decided that was the way to enter the castle? The king. And it didn't matter whether anybody on the outside approached the castle and the drawbridge. It didn't matter what they thought. It didn't matter if they thought, well, that king is very, very rude, and not give me away. But, but, but I tell you what, uh, that's, you know, not very nice. It's the king's castle. He built it. He can do what he wants, right? That's the point. Now, here's the thing. If the king lowers the gate, he lowers the drawbridge down, and somebody walks up to him and says, you know, I don't really think I want to go in that way. I'm, I'm going to go around the castle and look for another way in. Because I believe the king should have provided multiple ways to enter. But it's not going to matter. You either go across that one drawbridge or you don't go in. Because it's the king's castle. It's the king's abode. It's the king's house. It's the king's mansion. And the king said, this is how you come in. Now, God is the king. God is the creator. And God has said, this is the way you enter. By faith in Jesus Christ. None other. Now you see, I suppose people can say, well, I can't believe you worship a God. It's that You know, that's that exclusive. That's crazy. What could be more inclusive than I died for you and you don't have to do anything but believe in me and trust me and accept me as your king and you can walk across? That's as inclusive as you could possibly get. It's free. But if you walk up to the bridge and say, "I don't want to come in that way. I think I think I'll go a different way," you're out of luck. And yet, fifty three percent of Christians surveyed by the Barna Organization in twenty twenty said, "Well, you know, faith is really really important, and you should have faith, but it doesn't really matter." in whom that faith resides. That's just astounding. There's only one way. There's only one Lord Jesus Christ. The way, the truth, and the life. And he's inviting everybody. And yet some people think it's so important we have multiple ways. Well, there's a lot of ways that, deter, that, 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 that are nothing more than man's own efforts to enter the city, and they will all fail. Only God's way will bring success. I hope that this time together talking about what will alleviate, alleviate our anxieties will help us understand the importance of our mindset, our our focus, our thoughts. Because they control how we feel. And they control our anxieties. Jesus knew that, and that's why he said what he said to his disciples that night. And then beyond that, if you're here this morning, or if you're watching by way of live stream or recording later, and, and you do not know the Lord, you've not placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've not taken advantage of the free offer of salvation that he gives to you, on the basis of faith in what He has done for you, please, please, understand. He's done everything He possibly can. He died for you. He loves everybody. And the way of salvation is open. If you depend on something else, that's a false hope. Come to Jesus, come in faith. He's the way, the truth, and the life.